Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Thomson Reuters Westlaw Edge and Answer One. Their virtual reception service is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week to handle inbound calls, schedule appointments, and even respond to emails. Check them out at answerone.com forward slash podcast for a special offer. That's answer the number one.com. And now on to the show. Welcome to the AVA Journal Legal Rebels podcast, where we talk to men and women who are remaking the legal profession, changing the way the law is practiced, and setting standards that will guide us into the future. Hello and welcome to another episode of the ABA Journal's Legal Rebels Trailblazers podcast. I'm Jason Taché, legal affairs writer at the Journal. Today we continue to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the Legal Rebels Award. For the past decade, it's been an opportunity to put the spotlight on those that think outside of the box and push the boundaries of the legal profession. This year on the podcast, we're catching up with some of the original Legal Rebels to get their perspective on where they've been and where they're headed. Today we have David Van Zant. Named a legal rebel in 2009, he was the dean of Northwestern University Pritzker School of Law at the time, a position he held from 1995 to 2010. While there, he caught the journal's attention for shifting the school's focus onto admissions, education, and social engagement. Before becoming dean, David was a property professor and an associate with Davis Polk and Wardwell in New York. He also served as a law clerk for Judge Pierre Laval, who at the time was on the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York, and as well for U.S. Supreme Court Justice Harry A. Blackman. After leaving Northwestern, he became the president of the new school in New York City in 2011, a position he holds today. David, thank you for being with us. Now, as I was preparing for our conversation, the first thing that jumped out is you've gone through a series of pretty significant career transitions over time, going from clerkship to practice is pretty traditional, but then becoming a professor and then making a jump to dean at Northwestern. It got me thinking, I think a lot of with career transitions in the way that I think about electoral politics, in the sense that the skills that make one a good campaigner aren't necessarily the skills that make someone a good council person or governor. So I'm wondering for you, coming as a property professor uh, and then j- making this jump to dean, what skill sets do you think helped you get that job uh, initially that didn't translate well in the position once you were there? Oh, wow. Well, the, the, the skill set that got me the job was simply uh, being the one who um, was the last person standing, didn't sit down when they were asking who wanted to be dean. <laughs> um, that was um, being a bit facetious, but um, I had been on the faculty for 10 years at Northwestern, and, uh, you know, I was interested in doing something new at the time, whether, whether it was in law, uh, in the academy, or some other place. And uh, it was an opportunity that sort of came then, and I, I thought it was a great one. So I, I jumped on that. So it's, it's less of making a big change. I was looking for something like that, some kind of leadership position. What was the learning curve like for you? In that job, it was a, a long one. It was it's the first time I had ever managed an organization more than just a couple of people. And that's always a challenge to do. You also are dealing with faculties at a major, at a major university who are you know, amazing people. Um, on the other hand, they're also sometimes quite difficult to work with in, in terms of 
of um, how they view their role in the institution. And the the last part I thought, you know, might be a challenge turned out to be less was the outside, the external relations with alumni and donors and others. That I really enjoyed right from the beginning. And it went very smoothly from that standpoint. Looking back at that time, I'm curious, or maybe this could also be applicable for when you made the transition to the new school. So I'll let you decide where to apply this question. But what was something that you were pretty certain of going into that job that at once you got there, you realized was completely not the case? Uh, you know, I think I probably going into that job didn't have a strong vision of what I wanted to do with the job. It was only once I got in there that I began to watching things and I began to see what uh, what what I could do with it. This is um, at Northwestern? At North Young, yeah. We're talking about Northwestern, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. And it usually takes a good year in these those sorts of jobs to try to get up to speed with the organization and, and understand it. I was sort of, uh, had always been uh, practicing law on the side, even when I was teaching. You know, so I had a good, my head, my hand on the pulse of the business world and legal world in a way that lots of times other faculty don't um, at a law school. And so I knew what our students were going through. I knew what the demands were from from the outside world for lawyers. I, I had actually selected law firms in, in fire activities uh, in terms of who would work for us. So uh, it was, you know, I, I took that knowledge and experience in brought it into the law school and said, no, what do we need to do to make make our students the best they can possibly be? And that sort of led to some pretty obvious um, obvious conclusions uh, that I sort of then, you know, carried out over the, over the years of my deanship at Northwestern. What were some of those obvious conclusions? Well, probably the most important thing is I always tell, uh, I always used to tell law students that uh, no one ever comes to you to solve a, a legal problem or to answer a legal question, they come to you because they have a personal problem or a business problem that needs to get resolved somehow. Uh, and so what's very important is having lawyers who have very good uh, EQ, who understand business um, strongly and can really be a partner with their client in terms of solving a particular business problem. And that was, that was really critical. In order to do that, you also had to be quite mature this couldn't be your first job on the line, and you um, you know you needed to be able to, to interact with people very well. So one of the first things we did at Northwestern was introduce two things. One was a an interview requirement. So every we moved towards a system which every admissions candidate had to be interviewed if they're going to get in. And second, we uh, also added a work a work experience requirement that said that you had to work. At the end of the day, it turned out to be two to three years in a non-legal job, which is ideal, between college and law school. So, you know, that's where that prior experience had sort of helped me understand what the marketplace needed. One of the other changes that I noted from our profile that we wrote about you back in 2009 was that when you took the job as dean at Northwestern, at the time, according to your colleagues that we interviewed, you were considered a pretty conservative dresser. Um, but, <laughs> but when you took the job, you decided that you were going to wear the school's color purple uh, in some capacity every day in that role. W- was this more than just a branding exercise to you? Like what led you to decide not only was your job going to change, but also your aesthetics? Well, I was trying to send a couple of messages. One was that 
you know, you do have to be marketing all the time and, and selling yourself and your brand, whatever it is. Um, two is that you should have tremendous pride in the institution, whatever it is uh, that you work for, and should be proud to wear its colors. It's one expression of that. And the last one was the purple is not a bad color. I could think of some much worse colors. <laughs> So I had an opportunity in preparation to read through a number of things uh, that you've written over the years. And, and one that jumped out to me was regarding college and university ranking systems. And yes. It's a personal topic that I find very interesting, especially as the debate around algorithmic accountability has heated up mm. in the last few years. To put my cards out there, I've been very skeptical of, of various mm. ranking systems, including those like U.S. News and World Report, uh, largely because you know, what we know of the factors to be, and many of these are black boxed, and so we don't really know. Um, from my perspective, don't tell us a lot about the quality of education at an institution. And these are factors like incoming class SAT scores, alumni giving, lower acceptance rates, all tend to make schools more competitive in these rankings. But going back through your catalog in 2012, you wrote an article titled In Defense of Rankings, where you defended the practice broadly. Um, then you wrote, even as a blunt instrument, they allow prospective students to zero in on which institutions offer the best education as well as the best fit for them. Um, I'm wondering if your opinion has changed at all since you wrote that in 2012. Uh, and secondly, if not, why should we be willing to put some of our faith into these tools? Well, I don't think you put you should put faith into anything when you're making a decision about where to go to college or where to go to law school. But my point originally, when I first got into um, legal academics and to, to being a dean, at that time, the deans every year there's some 200 deans in, in, the, in the United States, they would sign a letter that was um, put together by, I think it was put together by the AALS, the Law School Professors um, Association. And it would say, basically, um, it would be addressed, be sent to every candidate, everyone who uh, applied to take the LSAT. And it was sent to every candidate, and it said, basically, don't pay attention to the rankings. They're not good things to do. We're all different. We all have our own characteristics, and you need to look more deeply than that. And, you know, I think almost every law dean signed that letter. I refused to sign it um, uh, because I had a very different view, and I put into the – I'm trying to remember which journal it was. The National Law Journal, I think it came out in a letter. I did put in a letter there that basically made the argument that you know, we are dealing with very mature adults. Why would we, and we want them to be very mature, why would we not trust their judgment in how to handle information? Ranking is just another form of information, and it doesn't tell you everything. Um, in fact, uh, you'd be crazy to rely just on a ranking in terms of where to pick a, pick a law school. On the other hand, it's, it's almost patronizing for us to be telling our potential students uh, that they should not look at, uh, not look at rankings. Uh, I tried to get the WALS to um, subsidize a distribution of that letter to the, in the same way they had done it for <laughs> the first letter, but they didn't go for that. Um, and uh, to this day, I still believe there's no ranking that is perfect. There never will be one. A ranking is simply just taking uh, a bunch of information, organizing it in a different way, and rankings will organize. Each ranking will organize them differently. Some, you can argue, are better. Some are worse. But what the rankings really have done is force schools to be much more open about their their characteristics, about their requirements, but also about their outcomes. 
whether it's job placement or, or other things. And that, to me, is an extremely positive thing. So uh, I think, you know, it, it's, it's not a question of whether you have rankings or not. I mean, people can misuse rankings in the way you can misuse a lot of other very good tools, but rankings are an important thing. And uh, even if we, as law school deans, actually did think it was a bad idea, we were facing a world in which the, the people coming to our schools uh, were paying attention to the rankings. It was demonstrated. So I can see that point that giving incoming students more information is always better, or at least adds a little bit more perspective. Is there a concern in your eye that these larger rankings programs like U.S. News and World Report have become normative in a certain way where universities are changing what they do to receive better rankings? Yeah, but that happens. And that's, again, my point about misusing rankings. That does happen. It happens in any industry that you see. People try to work towards the measure as opposed to trying to do the right thing or do the best thing they possibly can. I think... If that's happening, the problem is not with the rankings. The problem is with the university leadership that's doing that. And I think they're crazy if they try to organize all their internal operations based upon uh, coming up with some um, results in a, rank, in a particular ranking. I mean, my belief in Northwestern was always that, you know, if you did the best job you could and you identified your school's niche and your school's differentiating characteristics and you and those were plausible that over the long term the rankings would follow and i think that that's probably i think that has been borne out um you can't you shouldn't just simply um, do what you're doing because you're trying to do it for the rankings so if i if i took away a theme from the writings of yours that i was looking at before this interview one was about uh, university accountability. And I saw the piece you wrote about rankings as falling into that that larger puzzle uh, in regards to how do we bring more accountability to the academy. And I'm curious your thoughts, tools or ranking systems like U.S. News and World Report are, are black box. We don't know their input factors or, or how they're weighted. And I was curious to your thoughts about whether or not the a level of accountability needs to come to these ranking systems in the same way that these ranking systems can bring accountability to universities? Well, a couple of things I'd say about that. One is I think, I think U.S. News actually is pretty transparent about what they do. They do do a survey of academic leaders and in institutions as part of their reputational, and that's what they base their reputational rankings on. I have a lot of questions about the actual survey itself, um, which I get into with you, but I think it's known, and, they, and then they pull some of the objective information from from sources we all have a, have access to. I don't know enough about other rankings to know whether or not they're as transparent as, as U.S. News World Report um, are. But my second point is that, yeah, we should hold we should you should hold any source of information accountable um, or any sort of. Uh, service you're buying accountable for what you what you want to have. So yes, I think you know we should. It's only if you think rankings play an outsized part in what's going on that there'd be some need for a government or a, a, some other kind of regulation to do that. Uh, but I don't think rankings rises to that level. I think it's rankings are just one more piece of information that people acquire and use in decision making. And yes, they should be sure and they should demand accountability. 
But that's driven more by competition in many cases than it's going to be by some uh, investigation or regulatory effort. Hello, listeners. This is Lee Rawls from the ABA Journal. We're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. The Insights from the Edge podcast series brings you the latest legal trends as inside attorneys sit down with industry experts. Stay informed on the latest topics, including our latest episode on five ways to identify the best AI. Check out this episode on the legal current from Thomson Reuters to learn how to evaluate AI solutions to ensure you have the best tools for your legal research. Is your firm experiencing missed calls, empty voicemail boxes, and potential clients you'll never hear from again? Enter AnswerOne Virtual Receptionist. They're more than just an answering service. AnswerOne's available 24-7. They can even schedule appointments, respond to emails, integrate with Clio, and much more. AnswerOne helps make sure your clients have the experience they deserve. Give them a call at 800-ANSWER-1 or visit them at answerone.com forward slash podcast for a special offer. That's answer the number one.com. Welcome back to the ABA Journal's Legal Rebels podcast. We now return to our show, which is already in progress. So at your current institution, which is the new school now, uh, it's celebrating its centennial this year. So first, congratulations on on that milestone. And the university has a very storied history, but I, I want to talk to you about one specific point, as um, I'm sure you and your colleagues are reflecting on its 100-year history. In 1933, the university opened its doors to 180 German-Jewish scholars and their families who were being purged from universities in Germany uh, by the new chancellor at the time, uh, who was Adolf Hitler. Uh, the effort at New School was called the University in Exile, which a year later was incorporated fully into the university. I'm curious, as you look back uh, over these hundred years and, and this particular moment, 85 years ago in the school's history, what do you think we can learn from your predecessor uh, that made that decision in, in 1933? Alvin Johnson, who made that decision, was the president of the New School for uh, more than about 50 years, I think. And then he, it wasn't quite that long, but he was in the, in the background for whatever time after he was formerly the president, he was, he was around. He made so many amazing decisions for the New School for setting it up, then the University in Exile, some later things that, that happened. It's hard to, um, you can't copy yourself after. <laughs> Nobody's going to be able to copy what he, uh, what he actually was able to accomplish. But I think the, the general message is openness and looking at creative ways of solving important problems. I don't think, I mean, I think at the time you wouldn't have found any other university in the country that would have opened its doors to that large number of refugees, and particularly Jewish refugees. You know, it wasn't going to happen. It wasn't going to happen in Columbia. It wasn't going to happen in Harvard or other places. And I think the new schools always had this openness to to the rest of the world, to other ideas. Uh, it's never been a uh, religious-dominated place. It's it's someplace where the, the president uh, or the leader of the institution always has to be on his or her toes in terms of identifying the next thing coming along. 
people don't understand, but that move that Alan Johnson, Alvin Johnson made was pretty dramatic. It, it, the new school, until for the first 15 years of its life, was essentially an adult education school. It did not offer degrees. Um, it did not offer, uh, you know, did not have full-time students or full-time faculty. And he sort of, on a dime, created this whole school that was completely the opposite. It was a full-time tenured faculty that was began to offer offer PhD PhD degrees to full-time students. So, you know, it was quite a dramatic shift um, right at that time. You wouldn't have said it was necessarily in the wheelhouse of the of the new school to have done it. But he given the new school's openness and his own, you know, really foresight uh, that that all happened. I feel like while not drawing comparisons to your predecessor at, at the new school, um, in, in 2017, shortly after President Trump's first travel ban was signed, you wrote, with one signature, President Trump threatened the fundamental premise upon which America's excellent universities and indeed our country has been built. Having been a university leader now through four presidencies, do you find that the moment we're living in has changed your role? I, I don't think it's changed the role. I, I think the role has changed over the time that I've been doing things like this. And at least in my lifetime, I think the role of the university president's changed quite dramatically um, from being a, basically a caretaker who raised money, who had nice lunches with alumni and, and donors, um, and went to football games. Uh, it's become much more of a CEO or managerial type of job. Um, in that unless an institution today has a real strategy, it's not going to survive unless it's got a gigantic endowment, which most universities don't have. So to me, the, the nature of the overall job has changed. And in, in one additional, you know, one part of that is the extent to which today, in particular in the last 10 years, the, the external political situation has a big impact on on your job and how you, you know, how you deal with it. We like, well, actually, unlike most American universities, we have a very large number of, of non-U.S. students coming, and they are our lifeblood. They what make us uh, who we are in many ways, you know. And so, when there's a, a travel ban or other kinds of rumblings of, you know, anti-immigration rumblings, that's a that's a real concern. The president has to sort of think about that and deal with that for the good of the institution, as well as for just the general principle of it. Do you really want to be in a country where we shut put up walls and shut down borders. So it sounds to me as if, as you talk about how the political nature of things have changed, that the role of a university president has also become more political. Is that right? I wouldn't say that. You know, in my experience in time with university presidents, which actually I thought was a negative thing, a lot of university presidents were going out and using the, the position as a bully pulpit to talk about their own their own ideas and their own political preferences. Uh, I think what's happened, though, is that the pressure um, from the outside on the, on the university means that you have to, at times, you have to, not all the time, because if you do it all the time, you dilute your impact. But there are specific things that affect your university and your students that you have to be publicly engaged on. And, you know, for us today, it's immigration and um, DACA and that kind of thing are, are right, right there. And, you know, a couple of years ago, it was affirmative action. Well, actually, it still is now. I guess that's, that's going on now. 
So I wanted to end our, our conversation on the genesis of why we're talking today, which was the, the award you were given in, in 2009. And from our perspective at the journal, being a legal rebel means, you know, you're busting these boxes or, or the, the traditions of the way it's always been done within uh, the legal field. When one of my colleagues spoke to those that you work with 10 years ago, uh, one person said that you didn't believe in any sacred cows and you were going to you were going to step on whatever toes or traditions to be able to move the institution forward to fit your uh, vision. So I'm always curious to this idea. You've had a long career already and I'm sure you've stepped on some toes. What would you say over your time has been your least popular opinion? Or move. Yeah, or uh, opinion or move, yes. I have so many to pick from. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I would think if, if I think back to Northwestern, it would have been uh, when I really pushed the faculty and began to you know, move in the direction of only you know, hiring for tenure lines, at least people with both JDs and PhDs. That was very unpopular. I got lots of flack in the legal profession from that. And, uh, you know, whether I was right or wrong, um, there's certainly a lot more of that happening happening today. I think that was probably my biggest, most unpopular within the, within the legal academy uh, for that particular move. What did you learn through that experience? Well, I learned that you never make any progress uh, without making some, many people mad. And it's important that if you have thought about it a long time and talked about it, discussed it, and you at some point you have to move forward and, and take that step, and you know you're going to get criticism for it, but you can't at that point you can't back down. You got to keep going. It was something I right to the very end of my time in Northwestern I pursued, and I think to Northwestern's benefit, I tend not to look at what my successors do. I'm not sure how much they've kept up with that, but I think it's a general trend in in legal education to do that. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. David, thank you very much for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for, for having me. It, it was a real honor 10 years ago or more now to be named that. That was uh, one of the honors in your career you think of very uh, with a lot of um, pride. David Van Zant is the president of the New School in New York City and one of the ABA Journal's first legal rebels. I'm Jason Taché, and this is the Legal Rebels Trailblazers podcast. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalRebels.com, LegalTalkNetwork.com, subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find both the ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or download the free apps from ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.